Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're taking a left-field look at public communication of genetics, exploring how the science of DNA turns up in popular culture, from comics and music to cakes. As a science communicator and genetics podcaster, I'm always on the lookout for examples of how the science of DNA and inheritance makes an appearance in popular culture. From the infamous genetic dystopia of the movie Gattaca and the deadly genetic bioweapon in the most recent Bond film, to songs, adverts, books, TV and more. So, in this episode, we thought we'd highlight a few fun examples of how people are using genetics ideas in creative ways, and also explore how including genetics in popular culture can help engage people in this complex and sometimes controversial science. Now, if you're a fan of both genetics and the Great British Bake Off, like I am, you can't have failed to cheer at one of the most charismatic contestants of the 2022 series, research scientist Shabira Yusuf, whose enormous three-dimensional baked DNA double helix crocan helped to propel her to the final and ultimate Bake Off glory. I was delighted to catch up with her for a chat about her career in genetics research and her plans for the future, combining her love of science and baking. I started in agriculture science. After the undergraduate, I went to the agronomist company. I do plant evaluation, sweet corn, chilies, you name it. I see they all have a different type of variety. They have different colour, they have different tastes. So it just intrigued me to learn, okay, I know how they look, but I want to know how what's happening inside. And I just took the plunge and I applied for genetics PhD in Leicester University. And that's when my genetics journey started. So after Leicester, you've now moved to London and that's where you've been working in a lab. Tell me what you've been doing there. I'm currently working at King's and we are looking at the aging in vascular smooth muscle cells, how our vessels become stiff. And one of those reasons is because the calcification causing the arterial to go smaller and it's hard to pump the blood as usual. And what I'm doing is screen through the targets, looking at the drug discovery to see if there's any drug that could stop or delay the processes as well as we are exploring eventually a biomarker targeting the vascular stiffening in an aging population. So you'd be able to identify the people who are most at risk of this happening and then also hopefully identify some possible ideas for targets for drugs that could then help with this. Yes, it is a very long process involving so many dedicated people along the line. So I'm proud to be one of them and at least a part of it, I have played a role on it. I'm a huge fan of the Great British Bake Off and then all my friends, we were all like, oh my God, there's a scientist on the Bake Off. She's a geneticist. <laughs> it's really nice to see representation of scientists, but not doing just science things as well. So tell me a bit about how you then got into baking. We all scientists, we know that writing a thesis is not something easy task to do. It's very long process. So you have a support system around you, but you always feel so lonely. And I was really close with my friends when I was in Malaysia. And the last thing that we ever had together was a red velvet cake. 
And that's how I started baking. I learned how to bake a sponge. I want something really tastes like home. And since then, I just keep on trying and just keep on research and learn more cakes. So let's talk about the most famous thing on the Bake Off this season. I think everyone would admit that when you brought out this DNA-shaped sculpture made of these incredible biscuits and it stayed up and it just looked absolutely incredible. When did you decide to do that? When were you like, oh, you know what? I think I could do this and I I think I can pull it off. So you look at the brief of your competition. I look through all of the recipes and it comes to the week nine, which is, I know that is a very crucial week. And the brief saying was, symbolize what you are and symbolize something that you achieve so far in your life that you're really proud about. And I was thinking, let's go to basic, the core of what I really have my patient is, which is genetic itself. And what is the most impressive structure that you can look at that symbolize genetics? Double helix. There you go. <laughs> a 60 centimeter double helix is very impressive sculpture and I'm just down for it. There's so many trial and error. The biscuit has to be very balanced. It is very challenging. I feel very stressful to do that, but it's all worth it. It's just so proud to show the DNA and what is my route and how I got this impressive baking skill as a researcher, having that research instinct is actually help out in my baking, really. So what's next for you? Are you continuing to do stuff as a baker? Or are you continuing to do stuff as a geneticist? I would like to come out as a baker who is actually established in terms of how I combine the genetics and also the baking all together. And I can see this platform as a Bake Off contestant, I could really use that popularity to actually push it forward, sharing the knowledge and communicate science and make science more fun, more interesting. I would really love to see Shabira's science bakes (laughs) become a thing. I hope you can make that happen. I really hope so. It is something that I really want to pursue. I really hope I can pull it off. Are you planning on doing a book? Because I know like a lot of the Bake Off people do books. Are you you being approached for that? That is actually my next one to go with because I'm going to do a book where I introduce Bake Off as a flavour, as a Malaysian flavour, how I twist a lot of bakes. And then hopefully if that book's successful, I can go into the niche where I really want to promote myself in genetics and baking. Okay, when people are looking at me, yes, she's a baker. Also, she's talking about genetics. I want to be that way. And as a woman that do baking as well as um, being in the research. So I didn't realize until after Bake Off, when you start interacting with people, I tried to reply all the messages on my Instagram. Like, oh, hi, I'm actually thinking if I should do biology. I see you on Bake Off. It really inspires me. You showed that we could do anything. So I got a lot of messages about that. And it, it really warms your heart. You don't know how much impact you give by just being there and just show yourself. And I'm really proud of what I achieve. That's Shabira Yusuf. And if you're interested to see what she does next, follow her at Shabira underscore Bakes on Instagram or Shabira Bakes on Twitter. 
Another fun example we've seen recently of using genetics ideas in a hilarious and creative way is the webcomic Genome Island. A kind of anarchic Jurassic Park with plenty of adventures, jokes and gene editing. Sally LePage caught up with its creator, cartoonist Matt Dillon, to find out more. Genome Island is a sci-fi comedy webcomic series. It tells the story of a remote island theme park that's filled with genetically engineered zoo animals. And they use a CRISPR-like technology. They can selectively breed any creature imaginable. And while it might look amazing on the outside, the park is being dangerously mismanaged by its eccentric billionaire CEO. It's kind of like a workplace comedy, It's, but it's also about the guests who suffer through their vacation there. It explores things like mental health. It explores things like love and acceptance. It explores topics like gene editing and being responsible scientifically. And But it's also just like kind of a crazy ride. It's got Disney-esque things about it, like the charming art style, bright colors, adult humor that is still appropriate for kids. It's for everyone. And I think that's important because, you know, the ethical questions that were being asked, I think we need to bring these questions to the forefront of mainstream media and to really start having a dialogue so we can move forward in a meaningful and knowledgeable way. And what do you think that comics and science art can do that I suppose traditional science communication like documentaries on the telly podcasts like ours can't do? What kind of niche do you think that you're able to fill? Well, because it's fiction, people won't take it extremely seriously. It it allows an entry point into the mainstream or people that wouldn't normally listen to genetics podcasts. And I think comics and, you know, cartoons have always historically made everything much more accessible to the public and work in little bits of truth in the fiction. Jurassic Park has had such a massive influence on kind of like people's understanding of genetics, particularly when it comes to like de-extinction and bringing back extinct animals. Was that something that you watched growing up? I mean, it has to have been an influence on your comic, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Jurassic Park was such a huge part of my life. It was probably one of my favorite movies as a child. It still remains one of my favorite movies. But as I started to understand more about genetics in my adulthood, I realized that there was so many questions that needed to be asked pertaining to our real lives, uh, but also in a fictional sense, because, you know, fiction and real life tend to intermingle most of the time, especially as a writer. I can't stop thinking about the future and like the big questions, like the uh, responsibility of, of science. And what's kind of your background with science? Because you're obviously an amazing writer, amazing artist. Oh, thank you. Did you do science at school, at university, or has it just been something that you just enjoyed picking up along the way? I've been a backyard scientist since I was a little kid, turning over rocks, looking at ant colonies. Yes, I am with you on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, big, big bug fanatic. The idea behind Genome Island, the reason why it even popped into my head was because I, I love drawing creatures and mutants. I always have. And I felt like I could create Genome Island, which was a great story, but it also gave me an outlet to create all these creatures, to invent new species and mix and match, make hybrids, 
you know, and just explore all that fun fantasy stuff like zombies and pirates and, you know, dinosaurs and all that stuff. It was such a grab bag of everything. And I think that's really why I've stuck with it for so long and why it's become such a passion project of mine, because I truly enjoy creating it. It's so much fun. And I hope everyone really enjoys reading it as much as I love creating it. I've enjoyed reading it. I have <laughs> found it hilarious. Would you visit Genome Island if it <laughs> you got to be expecting that question. Yeah, no, def- and, I've, and I've thought about it. And yeah, absolutely. And I would probably be on like the board making decisions about how safe it should be. <laughs> because as I think about all the things that could go wrong at the park that I actually don't end up putting in the comic because it's actually so dark. (laughs) It's too dark for my comic. So, you know, if it was a real place, I would have to be on the board making decisions to keep this park really safe and ethical (laughs) and responsible. (laughs) What are the sort of criteria that for you, if this was a real life island and you were sat on the ethics board, would would you want to satisfy to make sure that it's okay to go ahead with the technology? You know, I'm actually not sure because I don't even know if I would think the park should exist in the first place in terms of like, should creating creatures or modifying creatures or just in general, just messing with DNA in that sense, should it be used for entertainment and capitalistic gain? And my personal belief is no. I mean, it should always be to help people like cure diseases and research things that could help and make people and animals alike suffer less in this very questionable world. I would say no, I wouldn't want it to exist in this state. I don't think it's good for entertainment. You know, Genome Island is not about instilling fear or making people more anxious about it. It's the story is going to come to a point when we realize that it's not gene editing that's the problem. It's the humans behind the gene editing. So if you put a responsible person in charge at Genome Island, it could flourish. You know, it could thrive. It could be educational. But, you know, you put an eccentric, villainous mastermind behind the technology, and yeah, it's going to be crazy. Matt Dillon. And if you want to catch up with the action on Genome Island, just follow the links in the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or search for Genome Island on Instagram or Webtoons. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com, or come and say hi to us over on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. Here's what's coming up from the Genetic Society over the next two weeks. The Heredity Fieldwork Grant deadline is coming up, and you can apply for up to £2,000 to cover travel and accommodation costs associated with doing a genetics research project in the field. Applications have to be in by the 1st of May, and, as always, there's a link to find out more in our show notes. There are plenty of examples of genetics in popular culture, but are they helpful? And does it matter if the science isn't quite right, or even flat-out wrong? Jonathan Roberts, a genetic counsellor and academic who works in the NHS and at Genomics England, has a particular interest in genetics and popular culture. So much so that he ended up doing a PhD in it. 
I sat down for a chat with him to talk about how genetics is portrayed in pop culture, why it matters, and what could be done differently. I think one of the things that could be done better is focusing on the process, the uncertainty around science. I think a challenge is because it's hard to fit those into narratives because we like that eureka moment. We like the mythology of the lone genius. We like the idea of the scientists kind of oppressed by the system. The Galileo narrative, right? We like the powerful people telling the scientists that they can't do it and the science is wrong and they're fighting the system. It's, it's a powerful story. And I think a challenge is that science is a complicated, messy, uncertain process. And that's its strength. So I think sometimes the representation of the scientific process is something that I think would benefit from having more realistic and nuanced portrayals in popular culture. So I rewatched Contagion, which is a film about a global pandemic. And it was released, I think, in around 2014 or something. A lot of it actually holds up. And they have a vaccine and the vaccine comes in at the end. And it's a bit like the kind of the vaccine comes in and saves the day. But even in a film that's gone to such lengths to be credible, they couldn't resist the heroic science narrative. And the, the scientists, they say, oh, you can never test this vaccine. It's never going to work. And the scientist eventually just tests it on themselves. And this idea that there's got to be the heroic scientists who test it on themselves and is fighting against the system and no one else can do it belittles i think the scientific process and doesn't help us engage with that uncertainty so i'm always loath to say pop culture's got it wrong and i wish they would get it right and if only pop culture would present the scientific facts right then we'd all be fine because i don't think that's true at all i think one of the things that i find is missing in pop culture representation of scientists is like just how often experiments don't work and it's yeah, just exactly. frustrating just chuck it in the bin yes it's such a human activity isn't it science it's full of wrong turns and things that don't work and long boring trudges towards trying to you know get an answer and probably doesn't make for quite exciting narratives a challenge though is that even if you put those in, you know, as I said, they're not going to make good stories. And to an extent, I think people realize the limitations of what you have to do to do good storytelling. This came out of some of the interviews I did in my PhD. And there's one that springs to mind when I was interviewing a family and they were talking about Jurassic Park. And they were showing an acute awareness that was a recurring theme that something has to go wrong for the narrative to happen. And they were sort of joking about the fact that if you had a functioning health and safety oversight of Jurassic Park, it would be a pretty dull film. So yes, I think it would be nice to find ways of engaging people with the reality of what the scientific process is like. But at the same time, in pop culture, something dramatic has to happen. You are constrained by that to a point. Do you have like a favourite example of all the things you've seen, watched, encountered during your research where you're like, oh yeah, that's a great story. It's you know, good science and it just strikes a chord with you? Good question. I do lots of interviews with people talking about science and the kind of conversation would be stilted. One of the things that always excites me is when suddenly you'd find the thing that captures their imagination and it just opens it up. And one of the things that has kept me coming back to pop culture is so often it was a pop culture reference. I really liked the series Orphan Black. And that came up in a couple of interviews that I did. It really tapped into people's deliberations around genetics and identity and thinking about this idea of how our genes make us who we are. 
don't know if you're familiar, but it's a cloning story, but of people who are genetically identical put into different situations to see what happens and then to see the kind of the people they become. And it just seemed to kind of initiate that reflective conversation about, okay, so am I my genes or am I my environment? And thinking about that, it would just sort of open up the conversation and, and really spark people's interest. Given what you know and your research into using popular culture, using it as a jumping off point for conversations, how it grips people and excites people, how can we use this to do better public communication, public engagement about genetics and genomics? I think we can focus on them as a tool for listening, as a tool for communicating. So I think when we're often focused on science communication, we can get a bit bogged down in thinking about the aim is to take the knowledge that we've got, communicate it to people, and success looks like people understanding the science better. There's an extent to which that is true in some contexts, but often if we're talking about engagement, success isn't about communicating science to one group of people. It's about communicating with each other. It's about understanding each other's point of view. I think that's where pop culture could be really useful as a tool for listening and understanding as opposed to a tool for simply communicating because there's all sorts of ways in which genetics is going to be pushing at boundaries. We've got obviously testing coming in at scale on the NHS, which creates its own problems, both in terms of things like equity of access, how you actually do that in an equitable way. But then obviously there's the bigger stuff like, should we be using genome editing? Should we be using CRISPR on human embryos? What should we be allowing people to test for? So I think pop culture offers a really useful space to have those conversations because it's a kind of a leveler. It allows people into the conversation in a way that they may not be comfortable if you're just kind of sticking to the science to talk about the scientific facts and talk in very scientific terms. So when people are using a pop culture reference, often they're not focusing on the validity of the scientific content. They're just using what they've got to hand to express themselves to express a, a fear or an anxiety or a hope or an excitement or whatever. And I think if we're going to do science communication or science engagement well, we've got to do emotions as well as facts. So I think pop culture is really helpful there. Jonathan Roberts. And if you're interested in digging into his research on genetics in popular culture, we've uh, popped a couple of links to articles and papers on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We've covered baking, art, films and TV, so finally we come to music. And who better to talk about putting genetics into song than Rishi Nag, a former genomics researcher and bioinformatician turned full-time singer-songwriter and science communicator. He's the creator of Genomics the Musical, a one-man stage show packed with songs about the science of DNA and heredity. I caught up with him to find out more about the challenges of setting genetics to music and where the idea for his show came from. I've always played in bands since I was a teenager, but I've calmed down from the early days in metal bands to being more of a uh, singer-songwriter type. And then about 2008-2009, I moved into the uh, Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. One of the plants they have there is this thing called the Arabidopsis thaliana, which is like a sort of thale crest. They like it. It was one of the first plants to be uh, sequenced. It has a nice manageable five chromosomes and number of megabases. And I had never heard of this before. And this was really juxtaposed to me when I went into the market square for lunch one day and 
saw all the roses and usual uh, suspects on the florist stall there. And that kind of inspired me to write a song using roses as a metaphor for sort of popular culture artists and sort of Instagram influencers. And the Thaliana for the scientists who's, you know, they're doing lots of hard work and things, but they're not getting any public recognition for that. So that was a starting point. Made a video for that song with me singing into some broccoli as a microphone and uh, ended up thinking, okay, let's make an album of this type of thing. And so I was able to get an initial show at the Norwich Arts Centre. This initial thing was disparate ideas like the song about Mendel, but it was next to songs about dark matter, the beginning of the universe and graphene. It was just really a sort of mishmash of things that I found really interesting. In that time, I'd started working at the Welcome Genome Campus on the Ensemble Genome Browser. And uh, the public engagement team there put me together with the funds for making some videos. And I put this show together, Genomics the Musical, partly to... I wanted it to be a light entertainment science comedy show with music in it. And partly I was thinking about an audience of people like myself who studied biology at GCSE. I got an A, but there was no genetics involved at that stage. So I thought there might be people like myself who are parents who are going to have to try and understand what their kids are doing, but who haven't had that background of what they teach currently in school in biology. So I thought, let's do a show that I can put in on in pubs and things to sort of make that happen. And so that kind of had its um, unveiling a couple of years ago. And this academic year, I've been taking it to schools a lot more. The nice thing about the show is I can chop and change it for different age groups. The younger kids, they get sort of the basic introduction to Mendel and a bit of introduction to evolution, and then a fuller show for, you know, slightly older children. So does the musical have a, a kind of a narrative and an arc? Do we go through from one place to another or, or is it a bit of a, a mishmash? I'm trying to tell a story, you know, starting with where did we get the idea of genes from? So we do start at the inheritance ideas that Mendel sort of produced and then talks a bit about DNA going to RNA and protein, that basic thing, and having fun with it as well. So making the ribosome a sort of robotic character kind of thing. And then there's a sort of going into variants and you know why are we the same and why are we different? And then spreading that onto species. And in particular, one of the things I like is the fact if we look at genes that make us human compared to our common ancestor with a the chimpanzee, there's one called the FOXP2, which gives us the ability to sing. And if you look at the precursor to the FOXP2 gene going further back, you get it's affecting birdsong and things like that. So it's a lovely gene to bring up as a solid example of what goes on in evolution. A lovely musical gene. What was the hardest thing to write a song about? Was there something where it's like, oh God, nothing rhymes with ribosome? <laughs> I think the main problem I have really is things might be out of date. So for instance, when I wrote this musical, you know, I wrote a song about green fluorescent protein and it's a really catchy number. But now it's like being superseded by a lot of sequencing. So it's like, oh, I've got to update that and, and maybe move this out the set list. So. Have you got anything in there about CRISPR or some of the new genome editing technologies? That's something I want to bring in. It's interesting. So I actually managed to annoy my daughter by performing this at her school. And they, yeah, they've started studying CRISPR at nine and 10. And it's lovely to sort of see that. So it's certainly something to bring in. As with biological species, it sounds like your show has evolved over time and, and changed and mutated, maybe. Do you think you're going to carry on with this genetics, biology, life sciences theme, or are you starting to 
think about, you know, a, another dark matter, the musical, maybe. I definitely want to continue with this genetics theme. In particular, one of the nicest things it was to do was to perform at a rare disease festival, you know, in November last year, Rare Fest 2022. And uh, that was nice because it gives the parents and children a chance to sort of see the basis of what the scientists are going to be talking about with them later on. And that's so I certainly see it's a valuable piece of work. Artistically, I'd like to do my next grand scheme idea that will hopefully come through next year is an idea called ever-increasing circles, starting from the very tiny things and going on to the size of the universe and trying to build up a, a nice menagerie of that. Was there a song that was particularly difficult to write? Yes. So one of the things I worked as was as a bioinformatician, and that's the computers that processing the data the huge amounts of genetic data that we have now. And there was a song I wrote called The Fourth Paradigm, which was about the different ways in which science has evolved, moving on from the simple like observation to test experiment to modeling to now what we've got with AI, where we're sifting through vast quantities of data. So that was kind of a difficult one to kind of encapsulate those ideas into a, a song format, but one I'm very uh, proud of. How do you check that the things that you're writing and singing about are actually scientifically accurate? This probably means I do have to do the most research for sort of of any songwriter type thing. It is a case of reading papers, finding out about what's interesting. Sometimes you do have to submit to the rhyme like with a green fluorescent protein. I use the word glow instead of fluorescent. When I started performing that, I'd always use a disclaimer at the end of it. So <laughs> they're two different things, but I think uh, it's easier to let it go. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. G names aren't really words that rhyme very much often, are they? No, uh, luckily I haven't done anything about specific genes so far. One area I want to investigate, particularly inspired by the Rare Fest, is to try and do some about genes related to the rare disease community. But there's also issues there, you know, you've got to be doing it in a very sensitive manner. You know, often what works in a lighthearted comedy show may not work as a meaningful song. Where can people go if they want to find out more about Genomics the Musical or even listen or, or watch bits of it? So singingscience.org is the uh, website and that has links to the Singing Science YouTube channel and then there's Singing Science on Bandcamp and Spotify for Genomics the Musical. My thanks to Rishi Narg. And there are links to his website, Singing Science, as well as everything else on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And here's a taste of his song, Variations on a Gene of DNA. It's because of the genes inside us We grow up people and not like spiders You may wish to dine on flies But biology says that's not wise Plants and animals, trees and bees Different species, different sets of genes The building blocks are just the same The instruction books build us in different ways That's all for now. Thanks to Rishi Narg and my other guests, Jonathan Roberts, Matt Dillon and Shibira Yusuf. And do keep listening to the end for a cheeky bonus, a version of the Elements song by Tom Lehrer with chemicals replaced with the names of fruit fly genes, written and performed by my sister, science comedian and songwriter Helen Arney. Next time we're off on a genetic crime spree, looking at the science of stealing genes. 
For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. It does something to the algorithm and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzip was written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Emma Werner. And our producer is Sally LePage. And to play us out, here is the Fruit Fly Gene song with words by Helen Arney and the immortal music of Arthur Sullivan. Enjoy. Cleopatra, Capulet, Cap and Collar, Chickadee, Breathless, Bric-a-Brac, Hairy Ken and Barbie, Jelly Belly, Swiss Cheese, Genghis Khan and Gooseberry, Sloppy Paired, Slowpoke, Slipper Slouch and Say Yippee, Prospero and Pangolin, Pavarotti, Pygopus, Crocodile, Clooty, Dumpling, Curran, Bun and Comfus, Sex, Lethal, Saxophone, Son and Bride of Sevenless, Brainiac, Amnesiac, Giant, Runt and Tailless, la 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 There's... Double part, deadpan, dax, hunt and dodo, mastermind, menage a trois, nautilus and Nemo, hot sauce, hunchback, highwire, hedgehog, homeless, hamlet and hippo, tubby, tin man, take out t-shirt, talking tango, torpedo, la 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 A fruit flies DNA has lots of code that is just dross or filler. But these genes and some others are what make it a drosophila. La 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 la